Before we start this episode, I'd like to thank MSI and StormFX for supporting the creative community and helping make this episode possible. Hello, my name's Matthew Packwood and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be chatting with Andrew Montague from Pixel. Andrew is a multidiscipline professional who works in live action directing, motion design and visual effects. Over his career, Andy has worked at companies such as The Mill in London and The Moving Picture Company in New York, where he was the head of motion design. He has extensive freelance experience in both agencies and studios and presently works full-time at Pixel as both a director and an online editor. He directs in both short films and TVCs and has worked with global brands including Nike, Samsung, Ford and Vogue New York. Thanks very much for taking the time and coming in and sharing your knowledge with us. Thanks for having me, Matty. Glad to be here. So what advice would you have for freelance artists who are looking for work in these challenging times? Well, if you're an established freelancer, I think the best thing you can do is just keep in contact with the studios that you usually do work for. Yep. You've got to always need to be like checking in, just saying hello to the producer or um, the crew, because if you already have a relationship, all you're really doing is just saying, hey, what's up? How are you guys? Or like even say, look, I've actually... I've, I've been busy or I haven't been busy or even just share with something that you've been doing personally. I think that's also cool. It's fine to just be reaching out and people will be glad to hear from you. And do you think it's fine to just say, I haven't got much on at the moment? Absolutely. Because like I know our producers, they have to almost keep a tab on who's doing what to know who's going to be available. Yep. It's fine if you're you're doing the opposite and you're saying, hey, I'm actually free right now. Just reach out and say, hey, this is what I'm up to or I'm not busy. I think, I think you should do that. And from a psychological point of view, what do you think about like if you go for periods where not much is coming in and there's not many exciting opportunities happening, what do you think about that? As a freelancer, I've had up to like three months without work and I'm sure a lot of people listening know what that feels like. It's hard to not you know, freak out and panic, especially if it's been a long time. Yeah. I think it's important not only just reach out to people, but even reach out to other freelancers, see if you can catch up with them, talk to them. Because a lot of my work over the years has come from other freelancers that have been like, hey, look, I've just, I'm double booked. Can, why don't you take this job? Or, you know, or I'll just introduce you to, you know, Steve who runs his studio. Making sure you're just keeping communication open and talking to your friends is really good. I know that those things have always been able to get me through. And for young artists who are just like coming into the workforce in this period, any advice for them? Your reel is going to suck, basically. It's about you. So like focus on skills, try and get your skills up, try and learn as much as you can. 
but also show an interest in the studios that you're talking to. Like who are the principals there? Who are the creatives? What do you like about them? What do you like about their work? Don't just hit a studio up because you just just want work. Like try and go go after studios that you lo- you like something about them. Find out what it is. Find out who at that studio does that work. And then when you go and sit down and talk to them, show that you are into you know Stephanie's work and you like really like this about Stephanie. Yep. Make it clear why you like those studios and what you like about them. Because that tells them that you're not just turning up and here's my reel because your reel is probably not going to be that great. So it's about what you're interested in as a creative, but also what you're interested in about that company. Where do you think the opportunities are going to be in the future? I've been keeping an eye on what's happening with Unreal Engine. And I know Hollywood's pushing ahead really hard with using a lateral production kind of platform where they're doing post and production at the same time, like literally updating things on set. If you look at The Mandalorian, the way that was made, that type of production is really interesting to me. And I think in Australia, there's a gap for that. Cool. What TV, music or books inspired you when you were growing up? I grew up in the 80s slash early 90s. So all the classic stuff, it's all the Spielbergian stuff. Yeah. I had a particular love of Alfred Hitchcock and his visual storytelling ability. I've always gone back to that and I've always found that compelling. And what movies and TV shows are you watching at the moment that you find interesting? I just watched Devs from Alex Garland, who did Ex Machina, which I thought was really very different. I found that really interesting and compelling. And Succession, actually. It's not a uh, soapy? It's not a safety, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Um, so when you were growing up, yeah, well, there must have been something else, Andy, yeah. other than Alfred Hitchcock that you did that was sort of cool. You know what? In year 12, I got really sick. I basically had to be at home for a whole term. I couldn't leave the house. But the only thing I could do was um, life drawing. Yep. And it was kind of this blessing because what I realized was this drawing, which I'd always been passionate about but never really spent much time on, I spent this intense period where I was going out once or twice a week with my mum, doing life drawing. And then by the end of year 12, my grades were terrible because I'd missed so much school. Yeah. But I had this portfolio of drawing. And then what I actually did was apply to a Master's of Fine Art majoring in drawing at RMIT. Yeah. And I got in. That visual foundation that I got in drawing, which a lot of people would write off as a waste of time, became a really strong foundation for where I am now in terms of the moving image. But didn't you study at Swinburne? I was at RMIT first, but I just didn't think I was going to be able to have a career as an artist. Okay. Swinburne just started up their film course and I just jumped in because it was that love of movies that I'd always had. It's interesting because you got the design side and the visual effects side. I see how it all comes together. You did both yeah. motion design and visual effects. Throughout my work, that understanding of, of light, uh, texture, form, shape, that learning that I got, that foundational learning, I, that still applies today. Cool. And when was it that you actually discovered the like motion design and the visual effects throughout your career? When we were working together at Tribal, which no longer exists, that was when motion design was like really taking off. Motionographer was like starting to ramp up around 2005. And I just got obsessed with motion graphics and we just weren't doing any there. You were doing it in your studio, but I mean, you couldn't hire me. And 
the company wasn't really giving me many directing opportunities. So I went and took a job with Scott at Chroma who did have motion graphics yeah. and visual effects work. I was sort of doing both. I was doing like motion design animation with him and visual effects for like TV shows and movies there. My story is like an everyman generalist. Yeah. Like I've always been able to do lots of different things. So if you're that person, I guess this yeah. conversation's maybe for you. So you'd been working in the industry for about three years mm-hmm. at this stage. Yeah. And in 2008, you got the job at Chroma Media. Tell us about your experience at Chroma. It was the best job I ever had. I was on set on TV shows. I was doing visual effects. We were going on set as visual effects supervisors. Within like a nine-month period, I'd been on four or five TV shows. I was doing motion graphics for, you know, national TV commercials. Like I thought this was the bee's knees. It was awesome. Like it was was really cool. Scott Zero? Scott Zero, yeah. And Scott was an awesome teacher, awesome like mentor. If you're enjoying working with Scott and you were learning a lot, how come you only stayed around a year? Before I took that job, my girlfriend at the time, I said, no, I'm, I want to go to England because I got an English part. My dad's English. I could work there. And then I got this job and I was like, this is the best job ever. I'm not going. Yep. And then she said, I'm leaving. So she left for England. <laughs> I was still at this job with Scott. And I was like, you know what? If I don't follow this girl, yep. then, you know, I'm going to lose her. So I actually left Scott, went to England. Did you get the girl? Yes. Cool. Cool. All right. So what happened next work-wise? Essentially, I got there. It was the height of the financial crisis. All these businesses were shutting. I had like pages of studios that I was trying to visit and reach out to, do that kind of go-see thing. Yeah. I went and saw everybody in London, like all these studios, and I just got nothing. Yeah. And I was literally on a couch for like three months watching all these shops. Like a lot of post places were closing as well. So that was the three months gap you were talking about before. Well, I, I wasn't even freelance because I actually didn't have any work to speak of. London was just dismal. There was no work. Studios were shutting down. I had been an assistant to an Australian director uh, here for a few years called Michael Gracie, who's just made yep. his first feature. And through Michael, because he was a commercials director, he introduced me to the people at The Mill and the people at MPC. And I went in and he said, look, give this kid some work. Yep. Um, and nothing happened. And then a couple of months later, one of the producers called me. He's like, look, can you do green screen compositing? for?" And I just said, yes. Yeah. I couldn't do it. Lied, got in, and huh. then just ended up being one of their go-to guys, getting lots of work with the mill. Yeah. He also introduced me to the moving picture company, MPC. They never rang me. And then one day I was walking down Water Street, my phone rang and they said, can you please come in? And then, you know, that, and that's just how it happens as a freelancer. Yeah. Then I had these two good clients bouncing back between Mill and MPC. Then I got signed to Soho Editors, which are like a little rep company over there. They just rep people that do motion design and stuff like that. And then before I know it, I had a really good freelance thing going on in London. So as a freelancer, what were the rates like? You know, I think at that time it was about £200 a day you could charge or 250 sometimes. Sometimes my agent would get me three or £350 a day jobs, which is yep. awesome. So I did that for about two and a half years, got really close to the crews at Mill and NPC. And then by the end of about 2010, I got wind that NPC was opening a studio in New York. So how did you go about landing the job? I said to my wife, like, what do you think? 
should I ask them? Yeah. You know, put my hand up. And I did. I went, went to the EP, Vittorio, had a chat, say, look, I'm interested, and had a few interviews with them. And then they offered it to me. Cool. I flew over as a head of motion design for the new New York studio. Uh, you stayed at New York for? I was there for four years. So I was there from the start of 2011 through to the end of 2014. When you returned from New York, mm-hmm. um, what did you do from there? My wife was pregnant with our first child, who's now almost five, and I really needed to um, I moved back in with my parents. Wow. Really needed to get freelance work. And I started to get freelance work. I, I, I freelanced for about six or seven months. Yep. Worked for Yes Captain with James Cohen, Tilt, Pixel. I think I did a bit of agency work. I can't really remember. But after doing the freelance work, then... Pixel offered me a position by the end of 2015, and I've been there ever since. Over the years, which projects do you think were the most successful and you enjoyed the most? I've worked on no-budget music videos and like, you know, million-dollar-plus jobs. So it's hard to say, but I did a really interesting music video in London for a director called David Wilson called Let Go. And it was a Sal animated job. I'd never worked on one before. Okay. He had all these illustrators working and animators. And I was sort of sitting with David for about a week, pulling this thing together, like in in their office in London. And yeah, that was a great job. I still remember that. And one that I can still look at and go, yeah, it still holds up, you know, as a lot of Sal work does. Yeah. The flip side to that is like when I was in the States, really big budget jobs would often come in. And there was a two-week Nike job that had come in. And the ECD who was running the job was basically having a meltdown, like a real meltdown. Like he would end up walking around in a trench coat for the rest of the job, kind of <laughs> babbling. So I got called in midway and they basically sat me down and said, look, this job is going to hell. If we can't finish it, I think they were actually thinking about giving it to another studio to finish. It was that bad. Wow. And they're like, can you do it? Can you pull it off? And I was just said, yes. Cool. It'd be great if you could explain the parameters of the job. It was like the centerpiece of a full campaign from Nike North America. It was going to be in the middle of Times Square. It coincided with a, an event that was going across the fire boroughs of New York over a whole weekend. That was a big deal. Like we had the head of Nike North America come in yeah. and we had to present to her. Cool. And I had about a team of about 15 to 20 freelancers. So in that was a digital team. I had compositors. I had animators. And in about four or five days, I slept about nine hours. And it was this kind of thing where... I could see the finish line and I just had to steer the ship. By the end of it, we delivered the job. There was not a pixel wrong. I mean, it was, it was about 10 minutes of content yep. and it had to change throughout the day, like a morning, an afternoon and an evening session. How'd that go? It went down without a hitch. You know, I had engineers in the middle of Times Square in one of those big LED setups who I had to liaise with. Yep. For me, it kind of was like one of those moments where even though it might have been the sexiest job around, I was like really kind of aware that all that experience and knowledge had come together yeah. and pulled off essentially what was an impossible job. It's funny. Uh, a lot of people, when they talk about their jobs, they talk about the ones that look the best. But you seem to be talking about the one that was the most challenging. Tell us about some of the challenges that were a bit unusual. I had a freelancer that was drunk the whole time. He was turning up late. <laughs> I had a freelancer who was she was just like on chat the whole time with her friends. Shit. So there's all these things just going wrong constantly. And I just spoke to my ability, I guess, to be able to balance those personalities and not freak out. 
Well, we haven't worked together for over 15 years, but that's probably the thing that I remember is that you can calm a room. I remember you used to put the radio on and say, let's just relax. Yeah, I did. <laughs> like, and I'm like, and he'd be like, yeah, no, I thought that was pretty good. I always liked that because yeah. I, was, I was always really tense and you sort of evened me out with that. Yeah. Have you had any failures in your career and what did you learn from them? I've made mistakes, absolutely big mistakes. And failures have been more of like a personal reckoning, like understanding like coming up against something where I realized that, hey, that's actually not what I should be doing or I'm not good at this. Yeah. A failure back in the day when I first started, I sent like a whole 30-minute tape that was supposed to go to a sound session in Sydney. I didn't check it. This is good for any juniors listening. Just <laughs> check your work. It got shipped for the next day. The director flew up to do the session and they rang and like the tape is blank. There's nothing on this tape. Shit. And I wanted to cry and I, I probably, you know, they'll, they were kind of – almost wanting me to cry, but I didn't. <laughs> and yeah, that, that was a good lesson. So that was a big mistake. And look, I still make mistakes. I still make lots of mistakes. That was a big mistake. That was a big one. Yeah. yeah. That costs money, and, uh, uh, but not my job. Yeah. But in terms of failure, I think that when I came from London to New York, I had a certain idea of what I was going to do and it was going to be, you know, I was already at a pretty high level or whatever or mid-level. And I just assumed that that would translate really well into New York. I'd be fine. Did it? It kind of wasn't the case, you know, it was part of the situation that I was in, but part of me actually reconciling what I was really good at because motion design in New York is design. Yeah. Up until then, I'd been one of those guys who probably got a really good sense of design, but I wasn't a designer first and foremost. Yeah. When I started to get challenged on those fronts and people started to come to me for design specific solutions, I, I kind of wasn't really reconciling that within myself and I, I kept trying to push and do it and, and design and be and all that sort of stuff. So you, you really needed that two solid year design degree. Correct. Yeah. Cause yeah, type, that's working with type color, yeah. you know, all that kind of grid layout and all that kind of stuff. And I learned a lot of that stuff on the job. By the time I got through New York and I got there after four, four years, I realized that that wasn't really what I wanted to focus on. And I'd have this obsession with motion design for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, I'd picked up cinema, I was learning cinema and, and all those kind of things. And I just realized that, hey, you know, like maybe this isn't worth churning up inside for and getting really upset yeah. about because maybe it's just not your strength. So what was the hardest thing that you had to learn to progress your career? I'm a quiet person. It might not sound like it right now, but like I remember that first six months where I worked at Tribe with you. I actually don't think I said a word unless someone spoke to me. I was so yeah. scared to open my mouth and I've always been a quiet person. And so I guess... Biggest challenge for me is being able to understand that what I have to say has value and it's, it matters. Yeah. Someone doesn't always have to speak to you for your voice to be heard. I always would pay, partake in conversations, and I still do it now, as a silent sort of, let's say, third person. So like, and I might know the answer to something, but I'm waiting for someone to ask me for the answer. Yeah. That was one thing that I really had to overcome. And I had to overcome that quickly in, the, in New York because New York's all about the loudest voice in the room. Well, I think that we're the opposite on that. Like I'm always trying to give the answer when it's not wanted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. When you moved to London, you had no money and didn't know anyone in the industry. Yep. What were the actual methods you used to find some work? Back then, I didn't have a website. I cut reels based off the work I'd done. So I cut compositing reels and then I cut MoGraph reels and I kept them really short and really sharp. Yep. 
And whenever someone would say, yeah, come in, have a chat, I'd go in with my laptop, I'd sit down, I would be like, hey, there's a bit about me and I'd give her the short spiel about where I started, where I came from, what I want to do. Understand time is precious. Yep. Make sure I wear a shirt and smell good. Huh. And then I'd play my reel um, and that's it. Like, And often people say, oh, well, how did you do this thing or, or whatever? Or they say, oh, do you want to do more of this or whatever? Like, obviously, my reel wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great. Every time I got in the door with someone and I had that moment to be able to have a chat, that was where it's almost like if you're talking about sales, that's your conversion time. Yeah. To get them to like you or to get them to at least understand you. And what do you think your biggest strength was? If I could get in a room with someone, I knew that I could make a good impression where we could get on the same page and chat about their day their life, what's going on at their work. Yeah. yeah. I think that is like, that's one of your strengths is being able to communicate really well with people Yeah, uh, and make them feel comfortable, which is pretty cool. It's important. Yeah. yeah. When you arrived in London, it was mm. a financial crisis. Yeah. How did that all go down and, and did that make it more challenging? Or This may be a story for today because within crisis is opportunity, so to speak. And like, it's different. It's not the same, I know. But basically what happened was that the studios I started working for had started to let go of staff, but then they obviously had work coming in. So they needed to be able to almost do the same thing, but for cheaper. So I started to get calls to do things that maybe a, a new guy or a flame guy might do. And of course my rate was like a fifth of their rate or something. So that allowed me to start to step in and, and start to get jobs that maybe they wouldn't want to give to other people. Yeah, That's kind of initially how I started to get work trying to fill these gaps and studios looking for for ways to not suffer as much and be able to stay on their feet. Yeah. When I was at the mill, it was really sad. Like guys were getting called up to HR and getting let go. Everyone got their pay cut massively. That sucks. And the mood was really subdued. Yeah. And I felt that. But because I was a freelancer, I was kind of outside it. So it actually allowed me to kind of still get work, still survive and still work in an environment that was really kind of depressed economically. You were saying that it wasn't sustainable to have a lot of full-time staff, but it made good opportunities for freelancers because that was more sustainable. Yes, and that might be the case now. And what I would say is that often I'd get calls like, look, you know, we can't pay your full rate. Can you do the whole job for job price? And I know that happens now already, Yeah. but I found the more flexible I was, the more work I got because it allowed students to go, look, this guy's reasonable. He's going to budge on his rate. Often I'd say no. I'd say, no, hang on, I gave you guys a good rate last time, but I can't do it. I just can't do it this time or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so that allowed for flexibility. So this is really interesting. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on rates from time to time. Mm-hmm. How do you think that that compares to the present environment? Look, it's very similar in a lot of ways, but then it's different. What I would say in terms of rates is that just understand Back then, I was working for big, evil VFX behemoths. We're owned by banks and weird weapons companies and stuff. <laughs> Just understand, with any studio, they're not trying to buy Bentleys and yachts, you know, and they, they don't really. Yep. So understand that they're trying to balance things on their end. And if you can be flexible, it kind of allows you and other freelancers like you to be able to keep coming and keep doing work. Yep. Because at the end of the day, like, I can't do what 90% of our freelancers do. And I, I don't want to do that. And it doesn't make sense for me to try and do their jobs because we yeah. don't have all those skills. So we actually really need, we still need all the freelancers we need yeah. 
I don't know because I'm not sure on the money side, but when I was freelancing, it was just about that conversation. Like, can you do the job price? Can you do it for a bit less or whatever? And they're not trying to rip you off. They're just trying to really just keep things afloat. Well, what concerns me is that over my life, uh, I've seen uh, like a continuous downwards pressure on rates. Yep, yep. And as I've said many times is that like, for example, broadcast design, yep. the rates for broadcast design halved over my career. Yeah, wow. So, and like I used to charge before I met you back in 2003 and I've yeah. got invoices, $55 yeah, yeah. an hour, $5.50 a day. Yep, yep. In theory, we should be double that by now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, which we're uh, not. Yeah, no. And yeah. like any marketplace, like it's exploded since then. There's so many students coming. Like I went through RMIT last year and I saw their motion design course. It's massive. It's huge. And do you think that those courses are like hurting the industry? Yes or no. Like they're awesome for producing people that are passionate and interested. I know even when I went to film school, our lecturers were like, two of three of you are going to get a job out of about 40 of us. And that was confronting, but I think it was necessary to that, say that. That was always like that in film school. Yeah. But it was never like that in Motion. design and animation. And, and those areas, they were very small courses yeah. that produced work for small industries. Yeah. Now they're very big courses producing yeah. work for small industries. Yeah. It doesn't work. Well, it, yeah. I, I don't really want to like stay on that. I'm no, more okay. interested in, do you think that what people earn mm. as a professional say mid or senior yep. visual effects artist or motion designer mm-hmm. match their skill and expertise? Probably closer to the side of no um, in the sense that you're right, it hasn't gone up as it should have. Yeah. I, I think it depends on what you're in the business for. Like I've never chased money necessarily, um, but I've got a family so I need to support it. So, yeah, that's a serious conversation. Yeah. It's an industry that's just constantly evolving and it's squeezed even since when I got in and you were in before me. Like there yeah. wasn't motion design courses. Yeah, Those things wasn't. didn't exist. No. Like the, that motion and design was just a new, almost like a new phrase. So yeah. it's evolved rapidly. Yeah. You know, the market's been flooded, as I said. I know that like accountants mm-hmm. and engineers yep. and other people in industry earn a lot more than the stuff that we do. Yeah. And that frustrates me because I think our our industry is highly skilled people. Yeah. The question is, how do we try and maintain rates in this time? Because continuing the downward mm. direction or status quo yeah. is even it's more concerning to me, you know, for the future. It's hard, right? Because like as you get older, like you and I, we've got families down, right? So yeah. we, we can't really afford to go backwards. Yeah. This has happened throughout Motion Design's short history is you've got young, hungry people that will come in and they'll do jobs for either for free or for low money. Yep so that they can get a start and get their foot in the door. The thing is like, we were both like that once probably. We probably did jobs at very low rates or whatever just to get in with the company and all that kind of stuff. And really that's a bad precedent to set because essentially you're undercutting everybody else and dropping the rates overall. So it's hard, but how do you, how do you police that? How do you even stop that? You can't. Well, It's, it's pretty difficult. Yeah, well, in my career, I really had an emphasis on trying to increase the amount of money that people paid. Yeah. And and somewhere around, I don't know when it was, but it was in the popcorn period mm. when I was running my studio, is that the pressure was going the opposite. Right. They were trying to decrease what I could earn and I was trying to increase. So it was a real battle for yeah. me throughout my whole career. Yep. I've always been trying to earn more mm-hmm. and have a professional income. And yep. I reached that for many years. Mm. 
but it was always a battle. So I suppose being prepared to stick your ground and yeah. always trying to get more and, and do less with more. Artists are historically terrible at trying to get paid what they're worth. Yeah. Back when I was at the mill, like after almost three years, the guys who are taking their 20% cut were still trying to get some money back. That sucks. They're still trying to get back up. Lo and behold, management realized that they could do the same job for 20% less. But even though it was two or three years later and they were coming you know, into a really strong recovery and they were busy as ever, they were refusing to give these guys even back to what they were before pre-crash. Yeah. And a lot of these guys were terrified to go and, and cap in hand and ask for their money back to get back at the rate they were before. That's typical, you know, for a lot of places. Well, when is the time when you try and get the small increase, either as a freelancer or a job in time? When is the time, do you think? Well, look, so the way I did it when I was in London as a freelancer was I just made an annual increase and it wasn't huge. And I, I gave everyone I worked for a heads up. Yeah. And I said, look, my rates are going up. A lot of other studios have already accepted it. could be a lie. And moving forward, this is what my new rates are. So that's before they even booked me or anything like that. And it might have only been 10 or 20 pounds or something like that, but it's a constant yearly move upwards. Yeah. The same way if you're a full-time employee, you should get a 2 or whatever 3% bump every year. Yeah, well, I've always found that when you go to look for a job Mm. and you start, that's the best time to increase. When you first yeah. arrive, yep. to yep. ask for more. Ask for way more than what they're probably going to pay you and then yeah, yeah. meet them in the middle, so to speak. But more is that they're more inclined to give you more at the beginning than what they are after you've been there for two years. Yeah, it's true. And like, you know, you almost have to threaten to leave or you have to go and find another opportunity, yep. which is which is not unique to our industry uh, before people are willing to sort of pay you more. But overall, let's not make this a sad conversation. No, no, like no. I've... I know there's lots of really well-paid freelancers out there, yep. well-paid creative directors, and yep. I've been very well-paid throughout my career. Yep. And you, you think that you've been reasonably well-paid. America was probably the pinnacle of that, especially the company I was at. Like, it was a very well-paid but high expectation for what no, – I almost wanted a piece of your, your soul for what they would pay you. Yeah. Um, that was just the market I was in. I would say yes overall. Like, I know – Are you trying to get me a pay rise? Is that what this no. is? No. I think that <laughs> – uh yeah well ironically now's not the time to ask for a pay rise that's true the challenge i think is you know surviving surviving yeah and then keeping status quo yeah and making sure that the industry grows yes yeah just how much were you earning uh when you were in london basically someone rang me was like we want to book you and I freaked out. So I had to ring him and say, how much did that uh, new card charge a day or whatever? And I just, because that was the only person I knew, he said 200 pounds. I was like, fine. I hung up and I hung, rang other people said 200 pounds a day. And I was like, cross my fingers. And they like, yep, no worries. So I started about 200. I think by the time I left, I was about 250. Yeah. Probably I got a bunch of jobs in between there. Some 300, 350 and 400 pound jobs, which are crazy. And is that a good wage in the UK? Yes, it was. And if I was busy, absolutely. And with superannuation, over the years, have you put much superannuation away? No. There's a big seven-year or eight-year hole in my super from when I went overseas, and I kicked myself, really kicked myself. I was really good with my books when I was in the UK, and I think I paid national insurance, which is the equivalent. Yeah. I couldn't pay it in the States because they wouldn't let me release it and bring it back here when I left. And when I think about all the money I didn't save, that really eats me up. 
I understand that completely, but that's the other thing about the professionalness of the industry. Yeah. And like if you work in another industry, your super's guaranteed. And- yes. That's a really good argument for any freelancer who gets really beaten down their rates because, I mean, look, everyone knows this, right? But combined within a day rate is a lot of other things. It's your sick pay. It's your holiday pay. It's your super. Yeah. You know, it's your tax. Like there's a lot of things in that one rate that are enabling you to turn up at a moment's notice and work yep. for these companies. So if you're getting resistance and you can't go any lower, you know, you can reiterate those things. You can say, look, I've got to pay my super out of this. I've got to pay all these other expenses. Yep. And I turn up when you want me. And if you're doing your best and you're delivering, I think that's a fair argument to make. Yeah. And I think that just recently that's really shown because I've spoke to freelancers are saying, I've got nothing yeah. and I've got no work yep. and what the hell? Yeah. And yep. they're taking like, they're having like six or eight weeks with nothing on. Yes. So that's a good example of how we're going to look after each other and sort of understand that why the rate was so high initially yes. was because it covered four weeks leave, yep. sick leave, those yep. sort of things. So, But I mean, if you're going into a place, be smart. Have a look around. Are they flat out? Are they really busy? Like, have they got a lot of jobs on? Like, if they've got a lot of work on, maybe they're not struggling. So yep. see if you can have an honest conversation. Say, like, how are you guys doing? Yeah. If they're honest with you and they might say, look, we're struggling, but we need you right now. So whereas if it seems like they're killing it, they've got loads of work and like loads of money, you know, like then maybe yep. it's really important to be smart. Well, you seem to be very open to talk about money. What do mm. you think about? Do you think that people should talk about their finances and business stuff with I, other artists? Yeah, you do. I was lucky to have a really an older mentor in London when I first started freelancing and he was like, mate, you've got to get this sorted. Here's my accountant. Go to my accountant. Yep. Put away 20%. Do this, do that. And and I did it. And I was glad for it because when those tax bills started coming in and all that kind of stuff, like I knew freelancers there who worked for three years, Australian people, never paid tax. Wow. They just took their money and then just bolted at the end. And they've got the, um, can't what the tax department over there is, but yep. they've, they're waiting for them. Man, this is important. You should be putting time into it. You should because creatives often put that second. They go, oh, this is an exciting job. I really want to do this. Okay, I'll drop my rate. Yep. It's important to be smart. Yeah, and I think it eventually gets to you when you become older and you realize that, you know, your tradie friends are earning more than you. Yeah. And it's like, what yep. the hell? Yeah. You know, they've got their little businesses <laughs> and they're going well. <laughs> I think this is a good time to stop for a quick break and thank our sponsors. Okay, cool. We'll be back in 70 seconds. If you're looking for a fantastic mobile workstation that is designed for the entertainment and creative industries, whether it's for processing complex 3D or 2D workflows in design, multimedia, illustration, animation, CG or visual effects, MSI's high-end mobile laptops provide one of the best solutions available for creative professionals. Find out more at msi.com forward slash workstations. For over 27 years, StormFX has been providing the technology that powers the Australian and New Zealand creative industries. Whether your focus is in animation or VFX, we are experienced in providing the technology insights and the solutions you need to get through your challenges and realise your dreams. 
You've got your cup of tea? Yep. Alrighty, let's get back into it. You were working in London for a while before you started to work at the mill. Mm -hmm. And then you worked at the mill and the moving picture company in London. Yep. Over a few year period. Yeah. How did your work change and how did your career change in that period? And what did you learn? A few things changed. Like when I first walked into the mill, it was literally three or four guys in, in essentially what was the, the broom closet doing, you know, motion design. And then by the time I left, they had a dedicated room with at least double the, that amount of crew and mixed in with the 2D department. That was the beginning of like what I think became Mill Plus. Yeah. I did a bit of anything and everything when I first started. Like I literally, I did like random compositing things. Yeah. Whereas by the end of it, I was mainly doing just motion design work. What was the main thing you learned working at the mill and how did you make the transition to go working at MPC? The companies were almost like one and the same. You know, they were like old rivals and most of the staff that worked at one had at one point worked at the other. So there wasn't a whole lot to learn. Culturally, they were slightly different. Mill was a bit cooler and MPC was a bit <laughs> kind of like tea and biscuits kind of thing, a little bit more kind of uptight and British. I learned how to work with producers a lot better as I started to get pulled into earlier and earlier parts of the job where I'd be on phone calls with directors or production companies and stuff like that. I'd started to learn that the crucial nature of the producer sort of creative relationship yeah, and how important it is to have a really good producer and to have each other's backs. And I started to get much better at that kind of like duo, that kind of back and forth with your producer. And do you think that when you've got a good creative and a good producer, they can create better work together? If that goes sour, like communication goes wrong, or someone's just like an asshole or whatever, it can sour jobs terribly. Yeah. And I guess that's what I keep coming back to is at the end of the day, we need people to get the job done. It's really about people, like more than anything. Yeah. If you're a bit of an asshole or a megalomaniac or a pixel fucker, like it just makes everything harder because it's just a series of problems you have to solve and you need lots of people to help you do it. And if you can't be flexible and you can't work with people, you buckle under stress and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It just makes everything worse. So now I'd like to talk about working in New York. Mm -hmm. How did you get the job at MPC in New York and what was the transition like? I heard a whisper that they were going to open a New York office. My wife and I always wanted to go to New York. I just went up to an EP that I really was friendly with and I said, hey, I heard you're opening the studio. I'm just throwing my hat in the ring. And then I had a few conversations with them and then they offered me the job. And I think a lot of the full-timers there at MPC London were a little bit miffed. Yeah. I ended up with this job that maybe some of them wanted. I moved to New York like about three months later. Cool. That must have been exciting. Yes. What was your role at the moving picture company in New York? I went over as a senior motion graphics designer and really I was just given charge. It was just me by myself initially and then the team started to grow. So I got a couple more designers and animators. So what is the atmosphere like having a design studio inside a big VFX company? Design within a visual effects company is a bit of like an oxymoron because agencies wouldn't always come to us first for design driven jobs they'd go to like brand new school or you know studios like that that were renowned for that so we'd always be like this this kind of last one tacked onto things yep and i've seen this across other vfx companies 
Okay. Growing that team and trying to make that work is always a challenge. And by the end of my sort of time there, that's part of the reason why I kind of left because it, it just didn't work. So you're saying culturally the design and the visual effects cultures yep. weren't working together to help you promote and get more work? They're just at odds with each other because you've got the person who designs the car, then you've got the person who builds it. Yep. It's almost like designers and engineers. Like they do need each other, but it's a different mentality. And a lot of VFX is highly technical. You need massive crews. It's a big working chain of people. Whereas like design is a lot of creative thinking. You need time to do that thinking. You need time to solve creative issues. Yeah. In a company that's really almost like a big factory pumping out massive VFX, that just seems like a waste of time. You know what I mean? It doesn't make sense to them. So I, that was a cultural thing that, I seem to keep coming up against. So you sort of progressed into the head of motion design. Yep. What was it like working in the capital of the world's markets? Very daunting initially for me. It was high pressure, very high expectations. And and look, it's a completely different beast. It's a different culture. They speak English, but it's not the same culture as either Australia or Britain. Well, that's interesting. I was really overwhelmed. It wasn't at all like what I'd experienced in London. And, you know, you got to understand that we were going in just 12 people trying to build a company from scratch with the mill literally across the street from us. You could see their office like out the window. Yeah. We were direct competition. So and it was their first foothold in America. So it was like big thing at stake for this company that it had to work. Yeah. So there's huge amount of pressure for this thing to go down well. And I, I've always been one to put a lot of pressure on myself. So mix that in with New York, which is a really ambitious city. There's a lot of ambition. It creates this soup where you can't really escape it. You can't, yeah. it's not like here where you, you've got a lot of relief from that and, and people have a little bit of balance. Yeah. Yeah, I, I found it initially really daunting and really kind of stressful. And do you think that the people were highly skilled or was it just a... a- yeah. The talent there is incredible. And New York is like every quarterback from every town around the world comes to New York thinking they're the best quarterback, but they're actually now in a city full of the best quarterbacks from all over the world. So you have to readjust your your understanding of who you are. And there are superstars. There are yep. people who are absolutely incredible. And that's what would blow me away. Like the skill and the talent that you would come across there is really, really amazing. Because I remember at the time thinking, gee, Andy's going well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Geez. Uh, but you're saying that there's a big difference between London and New York. Yeah, there is. There is. And But there's also a creative difference. Like I, a lot of the creative in London was way more interesting. Yeah. American creative often is very conservative. And big meetings and... Huge meetings like... Uh, you know, I didn't finish till 6.30, like was my standard, but I never finished at 6.30, I was later. I mean, you'd be in meetings on Friday evening because that's just how they like to do things, um, massive meetings. And, you know, that was a learning curve too. Yeah. For me, or New York was all about the loudest voice in the room. So, and I, and I started to realize because I'm not a loud guy, was that I had to speak up and make myself heard and make myself clear because even if you didn't have the best idea, if you had the loudest voice in the room, often that was the one that got picked because you're just more convincing and the loudest, which didn't sit right with me at all. That's how a lot of things worked. What did you really learn? Because it's a fantastic opportunity and interesting oh, look, experience. 
I learned a huge amount about myself, like what I could do if I pushed myself. My work ethic and my professionalism definitely went through the roof. Like I really kind of tried to raise my game there. How did it affect your career aspirations? I realized what I wanted to do more of and what I wanted to do less of. I was wanting to do you know, pure motion design stuff. And by the end of my time in New York, I kind of was happy to let go of that as this kind of high ambition so how did you become a writer for Motionographer? And what was the most interesting thing about it? The junior that we hired MPC, Brandon Laurie, a really top guy, he put my name to just, forward to Justin Kerner. He kind of just signed me up. He was kind of like the editor. And I just started writing articles. And what was really interesting about it is that we were kind of at the forefront of all this new interesting work that was coming out. I imagine the Motionographer work was voluntary. Yeah. So were you paid well in New York? Yeah, yeah, paid really well. You paid well, but you there's a lot expected of you. So that was probably your highest paid job. Yeah. And do you think it was worth it? Do you think the absolutely? Yeah. Oh, look, I have a tendency to kind of be pretty honest and brutal, and I don't want to say that I didn't have a great time. I didn't learn a lot, and I didn't do awesome things. I did amazing stuff there, and I had an awesome time, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself too. Yeah, well, it's funny when you have a family. I now look back and think, geez, I'd love to go overseas again. I know, yeah. <laughs> you could never afford it with a family, yeah. Yeah, families add another dimension. What was your wife up to when you were in New York? My wife was doing really well. Like, she was working as an interior designer for billionaires, like, beat, like not millionaires, billionaires. Like, she was having an awesome time. It's that kind of city where you can end up working jobs like that. You decided to return to Australia and settle down and have a kid. Yeah. So what were your aspirations in this period? I think I was prepared to let go of a lot of things that I wanted to do. And look, my mindset was different. I had a kid on the way and I was really more about just putting bread on the table. And not to say I've ever kind of put my ambition completely to the side, but, you know, your family, it comes first. Did you look for a senior role like a creative director or did you just decide that you were just going to go in the middle and try and? I was so worn out from the full-time position that I had that I was just going to go freelance and I was really enjoying it. And then, you know, when my son was born, he was born in August and I think I was already freelancing at Pixel and they had a position that they wanted to fill. I wanted that stability and it made sense and it was a great move because, you know, I'm still there. Was there any other opportunities that came up? I went into Method, who were still in Thistlesweight Street back then, and they were interested to put me in there as a creative director. And it was about the time that Pixel was kind of talking to me. So what was your thinking around making that decision? This is what's probably interesting to your listeners, is that what I learned over my time overseas was to listen to my gut. So I was getting offered good money at Method, you know, of course, there's a big company or whatever, but my gut was saying, go with this crew at Pixel. I guess what I'm saying is that like over time, I've learned that my gut is usually like it's right. And I followed my gut, followed my instincts. And lo and behold, obviously method, we all know what happened there. And I'm still at Pixel. Well, the method uh, advertising wing is sort of closed down. Yep. For me, what's interesting is that I interview people who get to the top of their career and they're always aspiring to go further. Yep. And I find it interesting that you aspired to go back on the tools yep. as much as you can and, yeah. and do a good job on the tools, be in the team, not yeah. running the team. I have been doing it at Pixel on and off, working as a creative director, as a director. 
I just don't hold on to that as a long-term thing that I have to do it or I'll die. I knew if I was going to be happy at work, I'd be happy at home. Yeah, and I personally found that mm. as a creative director, when I worked in a company with a lot of people, yep. uh, that I discovered that it's a lot different to working in with a studio where you own it Yeah, and that it wasn't for me. Like, yeah. And I actually, yeah. like after that, I've changed to just doing small little things yeah. now. Yeah, and uh, look, yeah. I think that it's it's more about what you want in the long term. And you guys at Pixel seem to have like a good work-life balance yeah. and a good culture. Surround yourself with people that are really good people and they love what they do and they understand the value of family and rest and play and work and all that kind of stuff. In the long run, you're going to have a better time and a better experience because the balance is right. And I think when you're working in a place that's imbalanced – It takes a toll on you, you know what I mean? And no matter how much money you're getting paid, I was offered more money to stay in New York, but I I didn't want to, you know what I mean? Because I was just exhausted by it. Like I couldn't, you know, so I think that's, I think that's one big takeaway for me and maybe a lesson to be learned. So that's sort of a nice segue into talking about Pixel. Yeah. If you could tell us a little bit about Pixel, uh, what their story is and what the culture is. Yep. You've got Alex Willens and you've got John Gavin who started it, I think almost 12 years ago. They're both from Benigo and Victoria and I think they even went to school together and they moved to Melbourne, started this company and then at some point grew to a point where they had to bring in a producer to manage things for them and that's Haley Polchek, executive producer, I guess. Yep. So they're three partners. Three partners, actually four now. Andrew yep. Goldsmith is now a partner there and he's full-time there as well. And then you've got Monique, who is a producer there, and then myself. The vibe there is really a love of creative first, a love of, of the work. Also, like a really great respect for each person, you know what I mean? So it's not, I'm making it sound like a hippie commune. It's not. <laughs> like we do advertising work. In a nutshell, we do design-driven yeah. live action animation. It's a professional environment. It's, yeah. not, a, it's not a hippie comedy, yeah, yeah. but it generally has a feel of niceness, which yeah, is, it is pretty and, cool. And you know what? If we get people in or freelancers who don't sort of fit in there, they just don't come back. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying like we're, we like kick them out the door. It's more like if you can't make it work on a person to person level, then like it'll, it'll show in the work. What makes Pixel different from other studios? If you look at our work, you look at our portfolio, it's all design or, or art-directed work. And I think that's kind of what sets us apart, at least in Australia. I know Buck's here, but they've come over from overseas. And there's other companies that do that kind of work. But I think that we're able to put that into live action, animation, 2D, sell, all kinds of formats and styles. Could you describe your pipeline at Pixel? What software, hardware, and sort of camera equipment do you use? All that online and compositing using After Effects and Premiere. Yep. And we use the Adobe Suite for everything else, obviously. We do our color in DaVinci. We do all our mastering out of Premiere. We've got Cinema 4D as well, which we use quite a lot with Redshift, yep. uh, which has been a, a big sort of part of our sort of pipeline. But we don't have any camera or anything like that. That's all rented. We don't have any of that gear in-house because, I mean, that stuff changes so often. We had Nuke for a year, so I taught myself Nuke. Yep. I'd love to go back to that, but it's hard because it's obviously very expensive and I would be the only one using it. So it doesn't really fit in with, say, when the other guys want to jump on. If they don't understand it, it's hard. What's your current role like at Pixel and what's your day-to-day like? 
compositor slash director, a lot of what I do is like compositing and onlining work. I'm involved in most jobs, either for onlining or compositing. Yeah, so it could be live action compositing, it could be 3D, it could be 2D. And then I'll kind of take the job on all its pieces and compile it and make sure that it, everything's A-OK, put the sound mix on, all that kind of stuff. Kind of that really important role at the end to make sure it all goes out OK. What makes a good online editor? Mm-hmm. And what can a good online editor bring to the process? I think as an online editor, like a lot of people think, oh, that's just the last part of the job. The way I see it is that I need to be paying attention right from the beginning because if you know the story, you're aware of the script, you're aware of all those things that when something lands in your lap and you're often at a really time-sensitive part of the job where things have to get out, they have to be absolutely 100% correct because if you think about it, the client is actually buying what you're outputting. That's yeah. the thing you're making is the thing they're actually taking home. Forget the shoot, forget the animatics, forget the story and the sound. That's the thing you're actually giving to them as a, as a product. Yeah. The more I'm aware and across the whole project, the better I can be at that point where I'm like, oh, hang on, no, this this shot isn't right because you're aware of, of the whole process. So being aware of the process is key, having a steady sort of safe pair of hands and good eyes and ears and attention to detail. And like, I still make mistakes, of yeah. course, and just not panicking and just being calm. Like when you fuck something up or whatever, don't freak out, don't panic. Do you work by yourself these days or do you generally work with someone from the client coming in or the ad agency coming in to work with you when you're onlining? Presenting, like the final thing, which I often do, like I'll sit on the box and hit play and scrub and let's call it running a session, which is really also really important because that's again about paying attention and being sort of eyes and ears. Because often in those sessions, you've got, say, our director and a a client who are maybe going back and forth about a detail. And if you have to be really switched on, you have to know what's going on in the room. And that's why if you've got context about what the job's about, you can do that job better. Yeah. Because they might say, can you pull that shot up or can you pull that the last version we did or whatever? You have to have that at hand. You have to really have an intimate knowledge of it so that, you know, you don't let your director down who's there kind of fighting for their projects and making sure that you're not making a fool out of them. Yeah. As a company, you're kind of quite exposed because you've got these people coming in to see your work, but you've got to make sure that you're on your game and you don't make a fool out of anyone. And do you find that there's a bit of a sales involved in that part or is it more about just showing them what's right? I've always got to eye on my producer or the director and usually we have a chat beforehand, make sure you don't show them this or start on this frame or whatever it is. Unless I get a nod or something from my producer, I won't bring something up. Like if, if a client says, oh, what about this shot? And they're like, I won't bring it up necessarily if I don't if I feel it's sensitive. So it's about, you know, being a team player and understanding how you fit in the big picture and not kind of going rogue, you know what I mean? For a director, you want to be their backup. And with the mastering, you've learned that lesson early. Yeah. To check your work. Oh, check your work. I mean, look, I still, I still make mistakes, you know. If, if Haley's listening, she'll know. Like, she's, she's, she's a hawk. She picks stuff up all the time. So does Monique. You've only got yourself to blame, really, like, if you're not yeah. checking your work. So I'm going to regret saying that, but it's true. And you, you have, like, a number of really nice directed pieces on your reel. Yeah. So what are the sort of work that you do as a director? This year's for me, has been about thinking about that kind of work and what kind of work I, I should be doing. If you look at my reel, like I've got like some 2D characters with live action. I've got full 3D. I've got live action, full live action. 
with VFX. Yep. What I've realized and kind of what I've spoken about with with Pixel is that it's harder to sell someone like me through to an agency because they look at my reel and they see a bit of everything. Yep. So I think that this year is really trying to focus more on one specific style. When it comes to pitching and mm-hmm. doing treatments, mm-hmm. what do you think are the important methods to sell your ideas? It's like images and words, obviously. That's the heart of it, right? Style frames, when I was in the States, used to be a really big deal. We still do them here at Pixel, but it depends on what the brief is. So style frames can often help sell the concept yep. really well. And I, I know that like style frame artists were like in high demand when I was in the States and you would get people coming to do amazing style frames. That's not always the thing that gets it. Obviously, your writing and your approach and your vision for it, that goes in the document too. So you've got an overview. You might talk about animation. You might talk about what the camera's going to do. You might talk about the gear. You might talk about talent. So you break it down into all these different sections. What are the main things you try and glean from the brief to do a good treatment? You know, you're coming at the end of a really long process with a brief. Like that's might have been in the works at an agency for a year or six months anyway. So it's important to understand the brand that you're pitching. Like look at what they've done before. Look at even like the colors and the, and the design that they use. Is it a departure from that? Yeah. Or is it just sustaining that, what they've already done? Who, who did the last job for them? Why aren't they using them? Also, what are they coming to us for? Is there something that they've seen? So the more information you can get up front really helps because you can just have an immediate creative response to a script, but it might be way off what they actually want. Cool. Alrighty. Well, that, that's very interesting. Mm. When it comes to shooting a commercial, what's the main thing that you're paying attention to on shoot day? I'm big on preparation. I think you can't be too prepared. So I like to be across absolutely everything. Like, so hair, makeup, I'll do storyboards or I'll do an animatic. Yep. I'll often run through that with the agency. So they, they're on board and they know exactly what's going to happen. And then I'll have a shot list that needs to get covered. You've got a plan in your head. It's very thorough. You're hitting all the beats that you want. You're hitting all the beats that the client might want. And then you're going to do that on set on the day so that it gives you enough time to get those extra things that maybe you haven't thought about or that just happen. I'm not saying you you don't want to have spontaneity. You want spontaneity, but you want to be able to have room for that because if you're not prepared and you don't cover all your bases, then you lose those opportunities to get those other good things. And what would you say is your biggest strengths on shoot day? I like to think I've got a good balance between getting talent and working closely with the client and the agency and being able to liaise with them. Yep. A lot of directors don't like dealing with the client and the agency. I'm fine with that. Like I find that even difficult people, I'm fine to deal with them, especially on the day. Cool. All righty. You also direct short films, mm-hmm. uh, which is a big part of who you are and what you do. Yep, yep. I want to talk a little bit now about your films. Yeah. Let's start off with Attic. Yep. And could you tell us what inspired you to write Attic and how it went? So Attic was, it's like my homage to kind of Hitchcock and, and Spielberg, right? So like we're not getting too deep into the, the film school stuff, but I've got a, a suitcase full of these kind of stories that I've written. So Attic's just kind of one of them. Yep. I'd had that story for years and it was born out of a passion to go back to live action directing. And because I had the resource and the ability to do it and I was in New York City and I could shoot on these amazing locations, 
Yeah. I did a Kickstarter. I think you even supported me, which was awesome. So just tell us a little bit, how long did it run for? What was the basic concept? And what was the reaction that you got after you completed? The film was about six and a half minutes. The concept was about a boy who believes he can make his stepfather disappear into a space in his attic, a sort of void in his attic. Yeah. And... I kind of want to film with almost no dialogue. I wanted to tell the story almost just completely visually, but I did have dialogue in it. I put it all together and I learned a lot. What were some of the things that you learned? Coming out of commercials, it's less about story and more about visuals. Yeah. I'm a very visual person and it forced me to start thinking more about story. And I think that's the kind of journey that I've been on is to start dealing more with story and less about visuals because the visuals aren't hard necessarily, yep. but getting better at being a, a storyteller and, and focusing on story. And though the Kickstarter experience went well? I got a staff pick, so it went really well. Yeah. This is in 2014. I exceeded my budget, whatever I wanted to get. Yep. And look, it wasn't the whole budget for the film yep. by far, but it definitely allowed me to kind of essentially shoot a film in New York City, which not a lot of people say they can or they have done, and do it on my own terms, like 100% creative control and story control. And it did cost a bit of money, but I'm so glad that I had that opportunity. Well, the production values look fantastic. Yeah, thanks, Manny. You know, and just those old buildings and... Yeah, exactly. And that's what I wanted. You know, I wanted to be able to get that because I knew if I came back here, there's no way I could get that same thing here in Australia. Yeah. Even work with some of the crew, like my DP had been around for years. He was a really talented DP. That was a big part of it as well. What were some of the things that you learned? The learning curve for me was that I just thought I'll finish the film. I'll send it to a couple of websites. And I'll put it on Vimeo and, you know, it'll blow up and people love it. Yeah. And that wasn't the case at all. Like I realized there's a huge amount of work to get your work seen. There's a huge expense involved with going to festivals and after a while of entering festivals, not having much success online, it never reached the eyeballs that I thought it would or that I wanted to. And I was really hard on myself because I put a lot of, like a lot of pressure on myself for that film to do well and it, and it didn't. And I think that that's not really what filmmaking should be about necessarily. I, I think our world's a lot about that now, but I don't think it should be. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I actually thought that you built that movie to show what you could do as a director. It, look, and it was. It was supposed to be a calling card too, to be yeah. able to, for people to see, like, this is the style I like. This is the kind of thing I like. This is the type of stories I want to tell. These are genres. I love genre storytelling. Um, and it definitely was. Cool. After the experience of shooting Attic yep. uh, and what you learned from that, uh, a few years later you went on to create another short film, yep. uh, Blackwood. Yep. Could you tell us a little bit about the concept and the story of that and the process of making it? I had been writing, again, I'm always writing stories. I've always got stories on the go. So I'd been writing a story about a sound recordist that picks up a strange sound in the forest and sort of follows it to um to not great results so to speak so it's sort of like a mystery it's a bit of a mystery it doesn't end well let's put it that way so it's um, sort of like a mystery horror <laughs> it is a mystery horror yeah <laughs> because i spent a lot of money and huge crew and all that kind of stuff in new york with with attic i wanted to be like how can i make tell a story and try and do this really cheaply really quick and work to my strengths and be more of an exercising sort of tone and push that more than anything yeah that's kind of what i tried to do so we did it really cheap i think it was like just over $3,000. Yep. A film doesn't cost what it costs. Like there's always a lot of help. We shot with available light. We shot, you know, as, as simple as we could. And that was my aim to kind of do that. Cool. 
So what was your key learning? What I learned off Attic was that if you want people to see your work, you've really got to push it and get it out there. So I completely changed the way I worked with Blackwood. I did like a, a press kit. I went and hit up as many sort of online blogs and websites as I could. I got articles published about it, interviews, all that kind of stuff. And then eventually it got picked up by a short film horror channel on YouTube called Alter. Cool. They paid to pick it up. Um a couple of channels actually, and it's gone on to have almost a combined about like four hundred thousand views or something like that. So it's done quite well for a horror short. That's quite interesting because I actually thought that the production values were quite high yeah. on Blackwood. Yeah, both you, you're trying to concentrate on story and suspense, and yeah, what you learnt was the marketing. I'm not saying the visuals don't count for anything. Like mm. I, I love collaborating with my DP, Dave Guest, on that. He's got a great eye and we work really well together. But I think that the visuals for me, they're crucial and I'm a visual storyteller. But what I want to get better at is just storytelling in its most basic form. So yep. I applied all my understanding, my knowledge of visual storytelling in that short. Yep. And I want it to look primo. I want it to look cinematic. I think we had some like amazing Panavision 80s anamorphic lenses or something. It was, it was mm. gorgeous, yeah. So what was the key to getting that high-quality finish yep. uh, on such a low budget? A lot of people in advertising talk about making short films. Yep. They often don't do it or they don't take a, a chance and do it. And I think that it's kind of scary putting yourself out there and, and doing something like that. But I would say for me, because I work at Pixel, it allowed me to get those connections to get a really good camera kit, to get a really good deal. Like Haley got an amazing deal on the lens kit. Yeah. Like anyone out there who's thinking about doing it, they should just do it. And the compromise is how do I tell this story? Like as my original story, I had a hospital, I had all these different things and I just kept cutting it down and being like, how can I tell this story for a few thousand dollars with a couple of cameras and one actor? Yep. That was what it was about. People who come out of advertising often don't want to make those compromises because they're so used to having a lot of money or they're so used to having a lot of support around them. But when you step into like indie film, it's the opposite. Yep all that stuff disappears. First of all, I, I just want to say that, like, it's an achievement to make a short film full stop. Yeah. And uh, of a high quality. Thank that you. is an achievement. I see how it benefits your directing work. Yeah. But is there a stepping stone to something else from this? Right now, I'm actually co-writing a, a feature version of Blackwood with an Australian writer, Tavis Urquhart, who's an awesome writer. I, I didn't think I was going to be doing that. Like, I never thought about it as a feature, but Tavis is kind of, and I are working on it together. And yeah, absolutely. It's something that I want to keep pushing and moving towards feature film work and even TV work. Yep. It's not a straight road. It's not a, like you're at it full throttle, but it's something that you kind of have to keep chipping away at and keep working at. So yeah, it is a stepping stone. What is your ambition for the future and what are you trying to achieve? I really want to get a feature film up. It could be Blackwood. It might be another film. Yep. I do believe that it's something that I know that I could make a big shot at it's an epic challenge which you may not succeed. Yeah. So what drives you to try and continue on and actually do this? I think it's about wanting to be able to be a storyteller. I want to tell stories. That's what I really wanted to do when I first came out of uni is that I didn't have that courage or I didn't have that kind of – I was too scared to do it. This is me coming back after all the years yep. of doing all these different things and being like, you know, it's okay to say what you want and to go for what you want. Often people put that to the side because they think it's impossible, you know. But I'd rather kind of try and fail than not sort of try at all. And the other thing is, is the experience of actually doing the journey. It's like the Masters of Motion. Yes. Like 
I've never really succeeded in all the things that I want to do. But the actual journey of doing the Master of Motion yes. has been yep. the good part. Couldn't agree with that more. And I think people get really caught up with like, say, like the, the podium moment where they get that award or they reach the top of the mountain. And I just don't believe in that because 95% of making a film is like, is not that. It's boring, it's long, it's hard, it's tedious. And if you can't enjoy that and you can't sit through that and like and see that you're building something and be flexible and let things grow and change, yep. you're never going to have that protein moment. It's so rare anyway. Like if you say you want to be like Spielberg, well, there's only one Spielberg. You've got to be comfortable with the journey and whatever that is. Cool. I think that's a sort of inspirational and good place to leave it. Nice. Thanks very much for taking the time and sitting down and chatting with me. No worries, Manny. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks very much for listening. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. Or you can come find Matthew Packwood on Facebook where I post everything you need to know about Masters of Motion. You can find out more about Andy at pixel.melbourne. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week. Masters of Motion. Bye-bye.